0: Pointed and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right
1: on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We've got to do something about China or America will not be a strong economic power 10 or 15 years from now. I don't fully agree with what the president has done because he's fought, fought this against too many different countries. But going being tough on China is something I've advocated for decades.
2: One thing I think we all agree on is that nobody wins a trade war. And we're all hoping, as others have suggested here, that these particular tactics get us into a better position vis-à-vis China.
1: Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey signed the nation's most restrictive abortion bill yesterday afternoon. Amanda Reyes works with an Alabama group that provides funding to women seeking pregnancy termination.
3: We have already seen panic. From people who are unsure of whether or not they're gonna be able to get the abortions that they have scheduled this week.
0: And now, Stacey Washington.
4: Hey, 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 guess what? We are live and direct to you. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Um, so <laughs> awesome. Listen, um, what are we going to talk about? Well, who do we have? What's going on here? Well, this hour of the program, we're going to be chatting with Monica Burke from the Heritage Foundation. We are also going to be digging into the House Judiciary Committee. Oh, you know what? I, I enjoy so much. It's just, a, it's refreshing. It's like, a, it's like a glass of Perrier water with lemon, lime, and a little splash of uh, cherry juice in it. Nothing better. Icy cold on a really hot day. With a straw. You know what you know what, what, what's refreshing like that? When Jonathan Turley, who is a liberal, comes down hard on stuff the Democrats are trying to do under the guise of legal this, legal that. So Jonathan Turley actually delivered the ultimate smackdown um, and he was testifying to the House Judiciary Committee talking about how holding bar in contempt would not fly. And he went straight to the D.C.'s appellate court, the 25th circuit. This is just, it's astounding how anybody, and there's a ton of lawyers on the House Judiciary Committee, by the way. It's not like it's populated with a bunch of, you know, no offense, because I'm a stay at home mom, you know, or I, I was up until just like a couple years ago. No offense to stay at home moms, but the House Judiciary Committee is not populated by a bunch of stay at home moms who are just used to doing ice cream socials and stuff like that. Some of the people on there may have very well been stay-at-home moms at one point, but a lot of them are attorneys. So they have the legal background with which to be able to negotiate this information, but they refuse to because this is about ideology, not about the truth. So here he is, it's number one.
2: Um, I believe that the contempt action of this committee uh, was unfounded, but I also believe that if it goes to a federal court, this is another area where I think that this committee could lose. Uh, The the issue of Rule 6E was addressed during the confirmation hearing when senators asked me why won't he commit to releasing the full non-redacted report? And I said because that would be a crime. You're asking him to commit to an act to secure confirmation that would violate the, the, the federal law. If he had said that, despite our friendship, I would have opposed his confirmation because that would be unethical. So there's no question that he cannot release that Rule 6E information. I was counsel in the Rocky Flats case. That's the largest Rule 6E case I know of. We spent years trying to get that special counsel report released. So I'm not a fan of Rule 6E, but we lost. And if you take a look at the McKeever case, which was just handed down by the DC Circuit, you are heading into a world of hurt if you go to the DC Circuit and argue that you could order BAR, that BAR could unilaterally release Rule 6E information. They just adopted a narrow view of Rule 6E. And by the way, their view, and I agree with the dissent in that case, raises serious questions about how they're interpreting Haldeman versus Sirica. So you could open up that fight if you bring that case back to the D.C. Circuit. I'd encourage you not to, because I happen to like Haldeman versus Sirica. But right now, the D.C. Circuit is not a hospitable place. They have adopted the narrower approach of a couple of circuits like the Eighth Circuit in interpreting those exceptions under uh, Rule 6E.
4: Hmm. So uh, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting about that whole discussion is that this is information that they have access to. This is stuff they know. They're not not in any way... um, oblivious to this that it's not like they don't have access it's not like there's not someone available to brief them on this type of thing they know what he just shared with them now I love the way he drew the connections between cases that have come before the DC circuit appellate court before that he's able to connect all of those things together what I don't understand is why this conversation is even necessary when they have all of the available information that's needed now, obviously, we know why. I mean, it's not like I don't understand, meaning I'm completely oblivious to it. We know why they are fine with going against precedent or, you know, kind of raking up all this stuff. Because it's an attempt to cover up the wrongdoing that they engaged in. This is their best hope of doing something to kind of fix the wrongs that they've, they've, they've done the illegal spying, all of that, they have to keep distracting away from what is a a truly difficult situation that they find themselves in. So we'll be getting also to um, ICE agents using drunken driving records to bust 141 illegal immigrants. But right now, I want to talk about uh, the Ninth Circuit. So it looks entirely possible that the Ninth Circuit could be flipped. Now, we've mentioned this a little bit before. Um. And first, let's talk about the court packing. Democrats are screaming about it, and it's not happening. Court packing, um, it, it's not happening right now. I, and I know both sides have screamed about this before. Both sides have gotten upset about this. But let's just focus in on the facts. Yesterday, the Senate approved the 40th Circuit Judge nominated by President Trump. Now, Obama got 55 approved. Now, it took President Obama eight years to get 55 approved. President Trump is in his third year as president, and he's, you know, he's at number 40. Now, there are also three nominees waiting on deck, and two are nominated for the Ninth Circuit. So that brings the Ninth Circuit into range of, of actually flipping back to some form of constitutional normalcy. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm giddy about it. It's, it's awesome. Um, now, when President Trump was inaugurated back in 2017, the Ninth Circuit had 18 Democrats and seven Republicans. I mean, the Republicans, is almost like, why are they even there? there? There were so few of them. Now, today's confirmation of Kenneth Lee, or this was yesterday, sorry. Kenneth Lee's confirmation makes it 16 Democrats and 10 Republicans. So 16 Democrats and 10 Republicans. Not too shabby. Oh, and also three vacancies. So he has three on deck, two of which are nominated for the ninth, which would fill two of those three vacancies, taking a number of Republicans from 10 to 12, leaving one vacancy, So there'd be 12 to 16, 12 Republicans to 16 Democrats. So it could theoretically occur within the last year and a half of President uh, Trump's administration that he could flip it. In fact, it could happen even faster than that. By the end of the summer, he will have appointed six of the judges to that circuit. And these are the judges who overrule the Hawaiian judges that Obama appointed. So these are the judges who basically are in the hierarchy are over the Obama appointees that are Hawaiian. So President Obama actually used the judiciary to pass, um, you know, a a bunch of different things. And he really was careful to um, to make just every effort to pull the court to the left. Now Republicans are working to end this and Mitch McConnell stopped judicial appointments in the last two years of Obama's miserable presidency and saved those vacancies for a Republican president. So we'll never have judges that we agree with 110% of the time where we, you know, we just don't have anything that we can say. I don't like that or that's not a ruling that I agree with. These are human beings. They're going to make rulings that we don't like occasionally, but we should have the same kind of allegiance in these judges to the constitution that Democrats have to their ideological bent. And so moving this court will eliminate some of the challenges that the president has had to endure over his immigration policy. And I think that's one of the most important things to point out here. The president has had an unprecedented level of pushback from the judiciary on his actions in the executive, so much so that the three branches of government don't appear to be co-equal it appears that the judiciary is the most important branch. And it's, it's, it's worth saying repetitively that in order for them to be co-equal, they have to actually have checks and balances and the Supreme Court shouldn't be the ultimate arbiter of things. Congress is supposed to pass the laws and legislate. And if Americans don't like the legislation that's passed, you replace your congressperson with someone who will present, you know, bring forward, put up, laws that you do want or someone who will go there and roll back laws. Although we, we all know that's almost an impossibility. So if we want to change that, if we want to change it from an impossibility to something that could happen, we have to be willing to send new congressmen in, in, into Washington, D.C. Now it's a dereliction of duty on the part of Congress not to pass legislation and to constantly make things judicial fights. But that's the lay of the land right now. And so if the battle has to be waged in the judiciary, the tactics that are being undertaken by uh, Leader McConnell and President Trump to right the judiciary by putting constitutional, uh, you know, adherence onto the court, then that's that's the way to go. And this is one of the successful things that's happening. This is one of the things that, um, I'm, I'm so glad that we have this going on. And so I'm, um, you know, I want to point you to the website, Stacey the Hit the subscribe button. Also follow me on Instagram uh, at stacyontheright on the right there and on Twitter. And if you would um, go over to one news and check out the stories, comment and subscribe over there, comment and subscribe. Um, actually. Okay. So here's, here's something interesting. Uh, last segment, I think it was, I said, I wasn't sure if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had children. Well, she does. She is um, married. Oh, her husband passed away in twenty ten. Martin Ginsburg, and she has two children: Jane Ginsburg and James Stephen Ginsburg. So two kids. So she she does have children. Her daughter is an attorney as well. Um, and she's a professor at Columbia Law School. And she's married to a lawyer. And they have two kids. Her son is a Yale graduate with a double major in French and theater studies. And their daughter graduated from Harvard Law School as well. And she's married to Scottish actor Rory Boyd. And they live in New York. So that, that's, uh, that's, those are her grandkids actually. So she has a daughter and a son and her daughter has a daughter and a son. And her daughter is a lawyer and her daughter's married to a lawyer And wow, one of the kids is a lawyer. So they're a family of lawyers. And then her other child, the son, is an American music producer. He has his own classical record label, um, graduated from the University of Chicago. He is married and has no kids. Wow. So you don't hear much about her children, but I guess, you know, they're adults and they have their own private lives. I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay, so um now I want to get into oh, well, so we're we're going to run out of time here. Um but I just want to touch on this J Edgar Comey blackmail story. And it, obviously this is a little bit of a euphemism because he hasn't been charged with blackmail. But Inspector General Michael Horowitz is actually like all eyes are on him because they're wondering, what does he know? What does he know? And what is he storing in his file boxes and file cabinets over there at the Justice Department about President Obama and his friends at the FBI? Because these people are starting to actually say things on TV like mistakes were made, Uh, meaning they lied, right? They lied. We'll have to get into more of this when we get back, but we're actually going to have our guest next, Monica Burke, Heritage Foundation. I'm Stacey Washington.
5: It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, healthcare, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way. But they don't yes you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care it's metashare and it costs way less than the alternatives the typical family saves 500 a month not a year a month and if you're single this can save you a lot too and let's face it a big reason metashare is 400 people strong it just works they've shared over 3 billion in medical bills so they can help share your needs too joining metashare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say Why didn't I do this before? So, yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining Metashare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855 Psalm 23. That's 855 P S A L M 23. 855 Psalm 23.
1: This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, shootings in schools and synagogues are always bringing the inevitable question, why. The most recent shootings illustrate that there is no single answer. Although there are some common patterns, there are many different variables. One comprehensive review of three decades of school shootings by Tonnell Hobbs did find some common patterns. A significant number of shooters were bullied, were suicidal, told someone, had access to guns, and planned their actions in advance. 10 shared all five traits, and 9 more shared four of those traits. They did account for slightly more than half of the shooters, but it didn't account for the other half. The mental illness of shooters was also a factor public health officials remind us that the vast majority of people with mental disorders are not violent. These medical personnel fear that any attempt to link mass shootings to mental illness will stigmatize such disorders. However, research by Grant Dewey and Michael Rock found that 59% of the public mass shootings that took place in the U.S. were carried out by people who had either been diagnosed with a mental disorder or demonstrated signs of serious mental illness prior to the attack. But that doesn't account for the other 41% whose actions could not be attributed to mental Illness. what about the world view of shooters many of them were atheists but the shooter in the california synagogue came from a christian home attended an orthodox presbyterian church where his father was an elder nevertheless he was infected with anti-semitism and white nationalism this shooting should be a warning to the church that our christian kids aren't even immune to the violent tendencies in our society the different aspects of these recent shootings should remind us that there aren't simple solutions to this specter that haunts our land I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For
0: a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk
4: everybody. Welcome back to Stacey on the Ride here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's my pleasure to have Monica with us right now. We have Monica Burke of the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about, you know, we've been covering the Equality Act. Um, we've been talking about how much of a threat it is to religious freedom and how difficult it would be for um, the, a law like this to be rolled back. Um and now we don't have a veto threat from the president. Can you give us an update on what this looks like? Of course. So let
3: me give your listeners some context again about what the Equality Act is and then let you know what the status is in terms of Congress and also the administration. So what the Equality Act would do is it would add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes in federal civil rights law. And that's problematic for two reasons, the first of which is just a matter of the terms themselves. So unlike the original 1964 Civil Rights Act, which added race as a protected class in federal anti-discrimination law, that's an objective immutable category. Sexual orientation and gender identity, by their very definition, are fluid, subjective, self-identified, which makes them very difficult to enforce, difficult to determine what constitutes discrimination on that basis. So that's kind of the first problem. But the second problem is How have these policies historically been used? So 24 states, hundreds of localities have adopted these policies. And where we see them adopted, they're ultimately weaponized in order to enforce government-sanctioned orthodoxy. They've been used to punish people who have traditional beliefs about marriage or the biological reality of sex. And so instituting this policy at the federal level would be extremely dangerous and extremely serious. As you mentioned, it would be very, it would be like opening Pandora's box. It would be very difficult to put it back in, back in the box. So very sweeping legislation. What is the status of it? So as of right now, uh, we expect a vote this week on the Democrat-led House. Nancy Pelosi said the bill would be one of her top priorities, and sure enough, It was labeled H.R. 5, so the lower the bill number, the higher the priority. So we can see that Democrats are taking this very seriously. And then presumably, you know, the Republicans still hold the Senate. Donald Trump is still president. Presumably, it won't become law. The administration has issued a statement of its policy pointing out a lot of the problems with the law. They haven't issued a formal veto threat, but we are obviously optimistic that they recognize the problems with this legislation and realize that it's not what's best for the American people.
4: So you covered a lot there and I'm, I'm going to have this piece over at the the Facebook page. It's at the daily signal. Um, And one, Mm -hmm. one thing that I'm really concerned with is the onslaught of current news. Monica makes it such that there's so much going on that I think a lot of Americans haven't heard of the equality act And the ones that have heard of it, the name of it immediately sets you at like you feel like, oh, Equality Act, that's something we can get behind. You don't don't even feel like you need to research it. You're like, oh, that's going to be something good. This is actually the worst of the worst. They they should have named it something like the worst bill we've ever come up with. And that's (coughs) saying something because we're the Democrats Act. Um, But of course, when are they ever into telling the truth about what they're up to?
3: And we've been saying, you know, messaging is important and the Equality Act would really ultimately promote inequality. So for example, when you have these policies where people have access to private facilities based on self identified gender or can compete based on the basis of self identified gender, then we have scenarios where first of all women are no longer can no longer count on safety and privacy in female only spaces like bathrooms, locker rooms for kids who are going on school field trips when they're sharing hotel rooms, they can no longer trust that they won't have to share that space with biological males or that those policies could be taken advantage of by people who mean them harm. But then also in the context of women's sports, we know from experience that men have many physical advantages over women when it comes to athletics. And ultimately if we create, and we've already seen, this is already happening. So in Connecticut, there were a number of girls who lost the state track championship to two biological males competing as females because they can just completely outstrip the competition because they have male bodies that are more athletically capable of those kinds of competitions. So ultimately it's the inequality act.
4: And when you say like (laughs) that, there's no way for us to adequately compare The differences between the male form and the female form on athletics or anything having to do with physicality, men will dominate. And I think it's funny because we've been conditioned to believe, Monica, that a woman who's five foot, four inches tall can take down a six foot, four inch tall, you know, burly man, an athletic military type man with military training and tactics and strategy and all that under his belt. A tiny little woman can take him down. And she can do so while looking good and keeping her makeup intact and never actually receiving a hit, like never being hit, never, you know, that's the conditioning of fantastic uh, movie, you know, uh, series like the Avengers and all of all of them, the, the all of the different universes of superheroes show women who are small and feminine, beating up big, burly, like NFL football sized dudes. And that's just not the case. Not only can women not do that. But men, with, with one hit, um, a man can incapacitate a woman. And so when you're comparing these, th- these are feats of valor that you see people doing when women are racing against each other. You have the fastest woman in the world. She's the fastest woman in the world because she's faster than all of the other women, which is a fair comparison. When she runs against a man, maybe not even a man who's really particularly sport minded, but he's, he's physically fit, that man will probably beat her because he has more muscle mass um, it, it, it's just not a fair thing for them to put these, it, the obliteration of the feminist movement that brought, you know, Title IX and, and federal funding for women's sports and girls' sports and K through 12 education. All of that is being rolled back by the very people who claim to support women the most.
3: I think you raise an excellent point that ultimately this policy is going to hurt women. It's going to undermine their achievements, it's going to leave them less safe, it will not promise them their privacy. And what's so interesting about the athletics issue, I think, is that it gets at the question of what makes us men and what makes us women. And ultimately, if you remember your high school biology class, it comes down to overall organization towards reproduction. It ultimately comes down to the biological reality of sex. And no amount of, you know, dressing in a different way or even pursuing (laughs) surgery or changing hormone levels ultimately can't change that overall organization that's even written all the way down to our DNA if everything is, you know, operating according to plan. So what's so interesting about the athletics context is that it bumps right up against that question, that big picture metaphysical question of what makes us men, what makes us women. And I think a lot of Americans intuitively recognize the sexual difference. And it'll be really interesting to see as you know, Democrats continue to push the conversation by pushing this legislation we need legislators, but also everyday average Americans to speak out and to, you know, revisit these basic scientific truths about men and women.
4: Yeah. You're so right, Monica. And so in basic scientific truths, that shouldn't be anything offensive or, um, you know, that, that someone would say, Oh, you're mean or you're bigoted. We're talking about just the realities of the situation. Like just, just like I'm not ever going to be faster than a cheetah I think the cheetahs are the fastest land mammal, 66 miles per hour. Um, so no human being could ever be faster than a cheetah. And it wouldn't be fair to put a cheetah in a race with human beings. While we're talking about the same types of, of thing, like men and women, same same human beings, obviously. But it's the, the comparison is apt because of men's ability to, just with a little minimal amount of effort, they're able to increase the size and strength of their muscles. Where women, we have to work much longer and much harder to, to get the same type of results. And even then, the maximum results that we can get leave us trailing behind um, what men can get with very minimal effort. I want to I also turn to a couple of um, legal issues that are going to stem from if, if this were to pass. First off, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also commonly known as RFRA, which safeguards citizens from federal violations of religious liberty, would be eliminated if uh, the, the Equality Act was passed. It basically would nullify the Religious Freedom Restoration Act.
3: You're exactly right. And that's, in, I mean, that's an incredibly big deal. Uh, that's most many people's first recourse in order to establish religious freedom and their religious rights. And of course, we always have the First Amendment, but it can be much more difficult to make a constitutional claim. Versus being able to have recourse to this federal law that reiterates our First Amendment freedom of religion. And so I, I think that it also signals that this bill is not taking, it ultimately furthers one side of the issue rather than allow most Americans have a live and let live mentality. And, you know, they just want to live, be free to live according to their belief. And this, by taking away the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, ultimately, First of all, stigmatizes religion, says that believing that men are men and women are women, or that man and women are made for each other in marriage, that that's socially unacceptable. So we can't underestimate that cultural factor. But then also, as you mentioned, from a legal perspective, this is going to take the rug out from under people who might otherwise have been able to defend themselves in the lower courts using that, using that protection. So it's extremely, extremely serious that that's being carved out.
4: Yeah, and okay, so the point you're making kind of it segues into the next point that I wanted to share, Monica, which I I'm dying to hear your take on this cuz you're so you're coming from the Heritage Foundation where one thing I love about my Heritage guests is you guys always have the complete picture and the legal side of it as well to kind of um juxtapose against what, where I'm usually coming at it from the position of of, you know, the social ramifications and that really makes for good content for the listeners. And so, you know, the Tyranny Act, which is our nickname for it over here at American Family Association, would actually demote women to second class citizens, which you've you've basically just kind of elucidated that you've you've circled that into the entirety of the problem here. It it keeps coming back to that, which I think I just I want to stress that point a lot, Monica, because it's moms and dads out there with their little kids playing soccer together and they're three and they're four. And when our kids were three and four, literally, because they're 15 months apart, the first two. They would play on the same soccer team and and the oldest is a girl and the young, the middle one is a boy. And so they were similar in size and, you know, everything about them was so similar. So they would play on the same soccer team. But when they got to, I think they were in uh, third grade, it might've been second grade. The teams were separated by gender because the boys, I mean, they would just kick the ball like it was their last time ever kicking a ball. And the girls were still kind of punting it a little bit. But the boys were trying to kill each other with the ball, even though it was soccer. Um, so it, it, mm-hmm. it begins to become immediately like you notice it right away. If you have any kids around you at all, you notice the boys become boys. Well, a lot of them are boys from the very moment that they come out. But as they get bigger and they get control of their muscles and they realize I can do stuff, they really do. I mean, they really go for it. And the girls are not as aggressive in their approach to sports and physical activity. It's just not fair to say that women and men aren't this, aren't, aren't completely different and distinct and unique and complementary, which is fine and not insulting.
3: Exactly. When you obliterate those sexual differences, ultimately, I think nine times out of 10, it's women who get the short end of the stick. And I think it's, it's great that you brought up the example of you know as little as little kids develop, those differences become clear. And I, I think particularly when it comes to physical differences. And I immediately think of you know when I when I grew up um, playing in gym class with both girls and with boys. I mean, the boys could outstrip any of us in competition. And in fact, it, the boys had to learn how to actually sort of curb their enthusiasm and, you know, tone down the level of competition because I I distinctly remember being in middle school and playing basketball together and the boys were a lot stronger than the girls. And if, if there was like any physical contact, I mean, I, I could have maybe moved them an inch and if I bumped into one of them, I was on the ground. And Ultimately those, those enduring physical differences, there's, despite what activists are proposing to try and transition, quote unquote transition kids younger and younger and younger, those differences manifest themselves in in not just in hormonal ways, but in terms of musculature, in terms of bone structure. And you know what? It's actually okay that we are physically different. And it's important to acknowledge that we're physically different so that we can promote true, authentic forms of equality that recognize that men and women have different abilities, but also have many of the same talents and Mm -hmm. are ultimately ought to be treated as equal and alike in dignity and, you know, the possibilities for what they can do. Absolutely. And so equality still encompasses difference. And those physical differences will continue to manifest themselves. And it's really important. So we stop the Equality Act from saying otherwise in law, because, as you said, it's going to be very difficult to go back on
4: that. Yeah, and and I think it's just so many different times. I could I could regale you, Monica, with so many times over the over the course of my even as a teenager and then as an adult, and especially during my time in the military over marveling at how easy it is for men to like lift things, pick things up, break things, you know, accidentally break things and how different their temperament is when it comes to literally attacking a problem and, and the difference in the way women do it. And then how those differences when put together on teams, you know, we accomplished amazing things because everyone contributes and the strengths of one literally complement the strengths of the others, different, totally different but are able to problem solve, um, I wanted to, while while I have you here, I, I just pulled up this number. Call legislators today, 202-225-3121. That's the Washington, D.C. switchboard. Tell them you're not interested in any Equality Act. This is a horrible idea. And Monica Burke from the Heritage Foundation, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your expertise on this and the work over at The Daily Signal with this piece. Thank you
3: so much for having me.
4: All right. Talk to you again soon. Have a fantastic weekend. Um, Call your legislators, guys. 202-225-3121. 202-225-3121. Tell them the Equality Act is a big, huge no. And you'll remember them with your votes in the next general election. All right. We'll be back with more. Stacey Washington.
0: She was a baby girl left abandoned on a doorstep in China. Our friends met her in that orphanage that had saved her life, and they adopted her. And believe me, she's not an orphan anymore. There are a lot of folks who have felt orphaned for much of their lives, either left behind or left alone. Maybe you know the feeling. Well, just like that little girl, someone went a long way to get you. Someone who chose you. He's adopted a lot of spiritual orphans into his family, and he's ready to adopt you too. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We've been cut off from the Heavenly Father by choosing to run a life that He was supposed to run. So we feel spiritually fatherless. But God's Son came all the way from heaven to that awful cross to pay for your sins and give you the chance to be His. You can belong to Him by saying, Jesus, I'm yours. It's something we'd love to help you do. Call us at 888-NEED-HIM or go to chataboutjesus.com you will never feel orphaned again.
4: Life is never picture perfect. Human beings come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we think we're prepared, the unplanned happens all the time. It's how we respond to the unexpected that shows our true humanity. But many do not see the value of every human life. Too many are willing to discard those who don't fit the picture of perfection. Abortion destroys the chance to love and to be loved. We never know what will fill the frames of our lives or how empty those frames can be when we allow exceptions.
0: Every life is a gift.
5: Learn more at www.radiance.life.
4: This is House Call for Health. Just like you, your doctor can suffer from decision fatigue, where in the morning it's easier to think through a tough problem, but by late afternoon, those decisions can seem tougher. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania studied the rate of cancer screenings ordered by doctors. They found that during 8 a.m. appointments, 64 percent of eligible patients were told to get a breast cancer screening. At 5 p.m., that number was down to 48 percent. The same kind of numbers showed up for colon cancer screenings. The study in the journal JAMA Network Open says in addition to decision fatigue, doctors may be rushing because they're behind in their appointments. The study also finds that patients who are told to get a cancer screening are less likely to do it when the recommendation comes later in the day. For more health news, go to foxnewshealth.com. House Call for Health, I'm Joy Piazza, Fox News.
0: Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
6: You no, know, I, I think the Chinese are caught in a real box uh, because, frankly, even if you think Trump's not going to get reelected, and I think that I personally think he's going to get reelected, but even if you thought he wasn't, you're talking about January of 2021. Well, their economy is not going to take the battering that Trump can deliver if they refuse to negotiate. Remember, the biggest customer has a huge advantage in negotiations because the other side needs the sale. We don't need the sale, the Chinese do. And the basic argument that Trump makes, which I agree with, is that we've had a very one-sided relationship. They've used intellectual property theft. They've taken enormous advantage. They have a closed market. They don't allow many of our high-tech companies to compete. Uh, They subsidize in many ways. Uh, And so the Chinese are faced with with a real crisis because we're telling them, we're going to change the rules of the game that have grotesquely favored you. And they're saying, we don't want to change the rules of the game. We like the fact they favor us. Uh, And that's what the core of this argument is. It's not anything complicated. Uh, The details are complex, but the core principle is simple. Uh, China got to be this big and this wealthy because all the rules of the game favored them. And we tolerated behavior that's intolerable.
4: Exactly. That was Newt Gingrich, in case you hadn't recognized his uh, dulcet tones. He's right. On this issue, we have tolerated intolerable situations for decades now. And it's not just with China. They're the largest, most pernicious bad actor. We've had rough relationships trade-wise with Western countries, countries that we protected during World War II, countries that we stood up huge apparatus and spent billions of dollars, sometimes billions a month in their countries with our troops and the troops' wives and kids and our Department of Defense workers supporting their economies and helping to rebuild their countries without any compensation. No compensation. So it's, you know, again, it was our choice. We decided to do it. They said yes. You know, it's kind of hard when someone walks up to you and says, Hey, can I... Can I completely take over your military infrastructure and protect you and basically treat you like you're another United States? Most countries are going to say, yeah, thank you. You know, they know we don't have a malicious intent and that we're not going to try to usurp control over their country or anything like that. Be involved in their government systems or their processes. It's a deal you can't turn down. Kind of hard to refuse, right? So. We we've we've been there. We've done that. We've got the T-shirts now. Now it's time for us to. It's time for us to reorient things, and that's what's happening with China. And and it has to happen. There's no kumbaya moment where we can just go over and, you know, maybe the entirety of the, the, the leaders, all the leaders of the communist nation get together and you know, the leaders of, of the uh, uh, Trump administration get together and they all kind of link arms and sway back and forth and dance and then, you know, drink hot cocoa and roast s'mores and just talk about how they used to have, we used to have a bad trade relationship and now our trade relationship's good. And then, you know, they're like, yeah, and they're like, hmm, and that's it. That's not how trade relationships are negotiated. The fact is, People want it to be a feel-good kumbaya moment. But um, if the Chinese are to understand that we're serious about this, then we have to go at it in a very serious way, which means, you know, tariffs. It means hardcore negotiating. It means, you know, hanging up on people. It means calling people out on, on social media. I just, where are the adults? Where where are the people who, I and I understand that there are people who disagree on the effectiveness of tariffs, but what is your solution then? What is your, uh, you know, no tariffs, then what? Please tell me what you are for as opposed to just railing about how tariffs don't work. So over at National Review, they have this piece up there. President Trump um, playing hardball with China over trade and how easy it is to see why he's doing that. Now, China has raised tariffs. um, we have raised tariffs. It does pose an increasing risk to our economy. Stocks are signaling that. The best course for us now would be obviously to reach a swift resolution to the current talks. And, you know, the deal that's on the table before China miscalculated that same deal, get there um, and, and use strategy to change Chinese behavior and use the strategy that doesn't only involve tariffs. Okay, I can agree with that. Um, now, the president has already telegraphed what the strategy looks like. He urged companies to move their supply chains from China to other com- countries such as Vietnam. Now, yeah, that's costly, right? It's costly to, you don't just pick up a whole company, um, factories, and everything that you've situated in China. And just you know, move it like Lego blocks, like how you move a Lego house out of this office into the living room. That's not how it works. But if you begin to make moves as if you're going to move your company and your your factories, that's enough. I, I, I think it's crazy to say, well, we can't expect com- companies to move billions of dollars of people and resources and material and investments that they've made in China to Vietnam. It only takes one company to basically say, we're, we're looking at ending our lease on this Chinese factory. We're looking at ending it, um, you know, that that's going to happen at the end of this next leasing period. And if they say, oh, why? Or, why are you in, we're planning on moving to Vietnam because of the trade wars with the United States. One or two major companies decide that and the Chinese would know that we mean business. But we have to have some unity for that, don't we? It just seems so, it's just mind boggling that we don't have the kind of unity in this country where we would say, you know what? I don't like the president's politics. I don't agree with him on X, Y, or Z. But on this issue of Chinese government, the communists stealing our intellectual property, I'm tired of it. I've been tired of it. And so on this, I'm willing to play ball. I'm willing to end this lease and start looking at properties, you know, because the leases are for like, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, I'm willing to look at moving this company to Vietnam. Better opportunities for us over there. Why not? So it is correct to to see it that way. In fact, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was one of the things that they hoped would, would kind of spur that kind of movement. Although President Trump ended our participation in it, um, other countries that are involved in the TPP are moving ahead with the idea. And, you know, the people at NRO think we should save face and revive our participation. And apparently President Trump has been open to this suggestion. And I think if it serves our purposes to participate in TPP in a way that benefits us instead of it being all about benefiting everybody else, and you can use the Trans-Pacific Partnership to move assets from China to other more friendly nations in that region, then why not? But participating in it in a way that makes us even more, uh, you know, underneath the thumb of China, that's just silly. So also, we should be looking at bringing cases against Chinese abuses before the World Trade Organization. The WTO was set up for this very type of situation. Now, the Trump administration actually has not been robust. It actually looks a lot like predecessors in declining to take full advantage of that forum. And the World Trade Organization has had some success in forcing reforms in the way that businesses deal with each other internationally. We should be working with other countries that have suffered from these abuses. And, uh, you know, then that's a negotiation. If you want to partner with another nation that has a un unfavorable trade arrangement with us currently, but you want to partner with them in taking China to the WTO, it might mean that Europe, Canada, and Japan get to have bad trade relationships with us for a little bit longer because we can't fight everybody at the same time. So it's in our economic interests and President Trump's political interests to make progress with China, um, which... Involves getting some kind of a deal. Now, I'm I'm fine with him doing um, the tariffs, and I'm fine with him exerting pressure over them. But it would be nice to have something that was working in concert. Pre- President Trump wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. He's a deal maker, the deal maker in chief. He likes to call himself. And so it seems like he'd be able to say, "Okay, you guys want some relief from the tariffs in Canada, uh, Japan, and you know the European nations." And so here's what I'm willing to do in exchange for relief from the tariffs and and us fighting over our unbeneficial trade relationship. I need your help in in battling with China. The only problem that I foresee with that is that the European nations are so lily-livered and the only people they like to bully around is the United States. They're tuck tail afraid of China and Russia, anybody that, you know, tin pot dictatorships, all that kind of stuff, they're terrified. And so they would take the favorable trade relationships with the United States as they have been doing for the past um umpteen decades, but they wouldn't be so strong in standing up alongside President Trump against China. And I think that's part of the reason the president has taken a go it alone approach because he really is alone because he's surrounded by ninnies. And the ninnies are these other World leaders who don't seem to they, they literally cannot fathom like paying their fair share at NATO, uh, you know, going up against China when they have negotiation room, just like we do. Everybody has something to bring to the table, except maybe Mexico. Well, they have the avocados. Um, so, you know, it's 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 in, it's in our best interest to make sure that this happens and making it happen with partners is the optimal prospect um but if it has to go you know another way where we don't have the the partners then america has the ability to to see this through and to make it happen and i think you know i think i think the president has at least the um he has the ability to get it done i really think he can um So there's, there were some people who reached out and said that they were interested in the information on, uh, people who attend church are happier than those who don't. And I actually have to look up the article that I shared on the air, but I definitely did share one of the pieces that I found, which is a Pew research report on that. You can find that on the Stacey on the Right show page. Um, and then, Obviously, there's a, a lot of information we've got trending on uh, Twitter and stuff like that about these heartbeat bills. And I think it's just, I think it's really sad that so many people only see women as empowered when women are talking about destroying their unborn children. And I think it's really crazy that so many people, um, r- well, it's, it's correct people see this as a a way of um, making women strong and empowering them is to make women ultimately the destroyers of the gift that God gives to us in the form of life and to take away a man's right to even have a say in it. And so it goes back to, you know, first of all, men have to be responsible in not going around having premarital sex and impregnating women. And I think a lot of times we put all the onus on the women saying, well, you, you know, you don't, you're pregnant, don't get pregnant. It takes two people to get someone pregnant. Women should be saying no, but men should be responsible. You're, you're wanting to find someone that you can spend the rest of your life with, not just bounce from bed to, bed to bed to bed to bed, you know, bringing disease and destruction with you. And so we have to all be more responsible, the men and the women, to have less unintended pregnancy because if you're having sex, you're looking to have a baby that that's what it's for. It's unscientific for people to act like it's about anything else. And so if, if we're going to be honest about this and we're going to be right thinking, men and women have to be more responsible about the way that they behave on being intimate before marriage. It's not what God has for us. Living for him means making harder choices. So uh, this is going to be a story that is going to pass on into past the the weekend and into next week about the passage of the heartbeat bills across the country. Um, We're going to see Mike Parsons. uh, Well, obviously, he signed the bill and we're going to see what happens. We're going to see what happens after this. Whatever happens, please enjoy your weekend. Um, Get in the pew this weekend. And God bless you from the heartland.